Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. Today's episode focuses on strategies you can help clients put in place post-COVID-19 to help them get their retirement plans back on track. So many financial aspects of retirement were affected by the economic fallout from the coronavirus shutdown that many pre-retirees are feeling like they almost need to start over in their retirement planning, including moving the date back a few years. I've recently had the opportunity to interview Carl Noble, Chief Financial Analyst at Pinnacle Advisory Group, about some ways clients might re-examine their retirement plans and make some realistic adjustments to get their plans back on track. The following is some carefully selected excerpts from that interview. Let's listen in. Let me introduce you to Carl. Carl is a Chartered Financial Analyst who joined Pinnacle in 2001 after graduating with honors with a BS degree in finance from the University of Maryland. In his role as a senior investment analyst, he helped develop Pinnacle's tactical asset allocation investment strategy from its beginnings in 2002 and remains actively involved in its ongoing operation. During his tenure, Pinnacle has successfully weathered three significant corrections, including the recovery from the 2000 tech bubble, the financial crisis of 2008, and more recently, smaller recessive corrections within a 10-year bull market. Carl, welcome back to the program. We appreciate you joining us today. Hi, Dave. It's great to be here again. The media has been describing recent events as unprecedented, and in some ways they are. But there have been other financial crises in the memorable past. What makes this situation so different, and how are people approaching their financial futures, Carl? Yeah, well, I think for investors, it's generally accepted that persevering through an occasional economic recession or a bear market in stocks is just part of the uh, equation. You know, um, these things happen from time to time, um, but markets generally continue to rise over time. You know, I think that's, like I said, generally understood by most investors. What, what was unique about this particular situation was that it was, you know, driven by the unfolding or an outbreak of a global pandemic. You know, this was something that really no one uh, saw coming um, heading into this year. It really seemed to come out of nowhere. And, you know, the response on the part of governments uh, in order to address a public health crisis was to effectively close the economy. It was as if, you know, we, we arrived in mid-March, um, the news surrounding the virus was getting worse, and it was as if they flipped a switch. And then all of a sudden, the, it felt like the entire economy just shut down uh, seemingly overnight. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, we saw uh, moves in the market that were very, very unusual, even relative to past significant bear market type of declines. In fact, this time around, we actually saw the fastest decline into a bear market that's ever occurred. And then on the flip side of that, we've now seen since late March, the fastest and largest rebound from a bear market low that's ever occurred in history as well. So the speed of the moves that, again, were really the result of a, a pandemic unfolding around the world is just something that, you know, people really hadn't experienced before. Um, and so, yes, the term unprecedented has been used a lot. Um, but, but I think it's pretty fair for, for some of the reasons I just uh, pointed out. And with a future that's that uncertain, how are professional investors viewing their holdings? And what's the future overall mindset of Wall Street in terms of what happens post-COVID? Yeah, I think it's interesting right now. You know, um, the, you know there are always bulls and bears out there, right, uh, debating uh, the issues of the day. Um, but I think what this has done is actually widen the gap between sort of bullish and bearish views of the world to an extent that quite frankly i don't i don't know that we've seen uh before and 
what, what I think is driving that is the fact that, you know, as the, the pandemic and the resulting economic shutdown was occurring, um, you know, you had uh, just, like I said, the, the economy shutting down overnight, it drove economic data down to levels that were completely outside of normal, even lower bounds related to recessions in a lot of cases. So in other words, even for the pros who are paying attention to this, and a lot of them use different models to look back at you know, what's happening now compared to what has happened in previous downturns in the economy. Well, these things were so outside of those types of events that have previously happened that, you know, again, people weren't quite sure what was happening. And there was and it was happening so fast that there was for a while there back in March and, and well into April, there was a lack of visibility as well. So, um, you know, here we are in, in mid uh, June now. And, you know, we have certainly gotten some more information than we had a couple of months ago about what has happened to the economy. Um, and how the economy is starting to rebound a little bit and, and also as well as what's going on in the market. Um, but I think you're continuing to see a level of uncertainty. People are kind of scratching their heads about, well, the market has gone up so much, but the economic data still doesn't look so good. Um, and even when you get into uh, the nuances of looking at different economic data as it's getting reported, you even see you know, very wide dispersion or, or very wide range of estimates about what even professional economists think these numbers are going to come in as and, and again it's it's you know very unusual relative to how these things normally occur so you know i think you know even on wall street to some extent and the people who are, are paid to follow this for a living uh you know there's still a level of uncertainty about what lies ahead um just because of the unusual nature of these events well with that many factors to consider a misstep at this point in the investment strategy could really have some long-term negative effects we're going to explore how five of those things could affect you right now Let's look at them right now. Number one, assuming the future after the passing of the virus will look much like the past, will end up costing you money. Now, isn't everybody striving to go back to the old normal? Isn't that what we're, we're shooting for here? Well, I, I think so. I think everyone shares the sense that, you know, we, we would all love to go back to some sort of pre-virus world, um, really just so that we can enjoy everyday life the way that we were uh, prior to this, this happening. Um, but I think it's generally accepted um, by, by a lot of people at this point that that's unlikely to happen, you know, until there is a, a proven effective treatment, first of all, and then secondarily at some point a, a vaccine um, uh, for the virus in terms of things really being able to get back to uh, a, a level of norm, uh, normality that we, you know, comparing to back in the beginning of the year. So, um, and, and that's probably going to take a while. You know, these uh, the, all of the studies about researching treatments and, and even vaccines suggest that it can take a while to do that. So I think for, for most people, it's safe to say that we should expect, you know, life to be a little bit different uh, for at least the next several months at, at a minimum and potentially beyond that. And, and, you know, and that is reflected in things like working from home and, um, you know, uh, to the extent that you can go to a restaurant now, it's probably not be allowed to be filled to capacity and those sorts of things. So life will be a little bit different. But, uh, you know, certainly over the last uh, several weeks, I should say that we, we've seen states across the country are all in various states of lifting or easing restrictions that had been put in, put in place back in the spring when the pandemic was at its worst. So, you know, there, there is this um, uh, push to, to move forward at this point um, across the country. Um, and like I said, uh, states and, and other places are trying to get back to that level uh, of normality. But um, I, I think that even if that goes smoothly for the most part, and certainly there is a risk of, you know, a lot of people are pointing out there could be a second wave of the virus if this isn't done um, in, in a smart way. 
uh, and there could just be another outbreak, um, you know, when the weather turns, uh, when we get into the fall and even the winter. So we certainly have to be on guard for that. But let's just say, even if it does go smoothly, um, for the most part, you know, I think there has been some lasting damage or there will be some lasting damage to certain parts of the economy and certain industries. So, you know, I think it makes sense for people to take a look at their portfolios and understand, you know, what, what do they currently own, first of all, how they're positioned. Um, because, you know, no one really knows, you know, how quickly something like airlines or uh, physical retail stores or, you know, cruise lines and other leisure industries, these service-based industries that really bore the brunt of, of these shutdowns, you know, how quickly those are going to be able to bounce back. So to the extent that people might own those sorts of things in their portfolio, I think they need to look at that and certainly think about, you know, what, what the ramifications could be looking, looking down the road. And, and again, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And then the second part of that is I think people need to understand and, and again, and relate it back to their portfolios in terms of the response by governments to this, uh, the pandemic and, you know, just the havoc it's created on the economy. So go- governments have gone into overdrive over the last couple of months in terms of the amount of stimulus that they're now uh, providing to the economy, which has, you know, certainly boosted uh, the stock market and, and, and other markets. Um, but one of those, uh, you know, one of the ramifications, especially for people who are conservatively positioned, is that interest rates all of a sudden are extremely low again. So um, going back to the beginning of the year, they really weren't that high to, to start with. But now you have, you know, short term interest rates that are basically zero again. So for savers, that creates, you know, some potential problems there. Um, and even, you know, something like a 10 year treasury bond is only around 0.75%. So it's really getting you almost nothing. And, and that's where, again, I think people who maybe are, cons- or are in retirement and conservatively positioned at this point, and they're looking for income out of their portfolio or, um, you know, just looking for some source of return do need to, to sit down and think about, you know, the, the ramifications or what sort of returns you might expect uh, looking ahead. So really, the new normal is nothing like normal, and it's not going to be for a long time. Number two, making big portfolio moves to try and protect your assets can ultimately cost your money. This is one of my favorites, because I know a lot of people I've spoken to screaming at their advisors, take me to cash until this nonsense is over, trying to save their funds. But this doesn't work as well as you think it might, does it, Carl? Um, from our view, no, it doesn't. And, you know, I should start by saying I, I can certainly understand why people would have felt like that, especially back in February and through the first part of March, when, like I said, we were in the midst of the fastest decline into a bear market in history. Um, so I think there was a sense, a, a really palpable sense of fear at the time, and not only for sort of individual investors, but I think even, you know, again, the pros on Wall Street were kind of, you know, a a little bit shell-shocked at how quickly this was occurring. Um, And, you know, at the worst of it, you know, different types of markets, not just stocks, but even bond markets, you know, they really got pretty squirrely there for a while. And it it was a little bit scary. So I can understand the sentiment of why people might have wanted to do that. But, you know, the second part of that is something I also already mentioned, which is that since then, you know, and especially since governments have gotten really active and central bankers in terms of providing a lot of liquidity and stimulus as a result of that happening, we've seen a record high rebound off of the low in the stock market, which was in, in late March. So, you know, for those folks who did go to cash, um, that might have felt pretty good for a little while as markets were sort of free falling there. But since then, you know, I think that they've, they've missed out on some pretty large gains in, in, in the market, too. So, you know, I, I think the, the bigger issue for a lot of folks and the way that we like to think about it is 
you know, really the most critical decision that investors are, are asked to make, and it's, this is really an initial sort of uh, a part of the process, is what is the appropriate portfolio policy for, for each investor? And, and really that boils down to how much risk should they be taking in their portfolios? And so, you know, I think for some folks who are inclined to do this on their own, there are tools and things online that can help them figure it out. But I, but I think for a lot of people, they either don't really know how to determine that or quite frankly, maybe aren't inclined to really want to do it, um, does require a little bit of legwork. And, and that's where I think considering engaging some professional advice could make sense for a lot of folks out there. Um, but I think generally speaking, for a lot of folks who are maybe in or near retirement, so they've already you know, created or established a pretty good nest egg, and they're really just thinking about how do I protect this and achieve some rate of return over time to you know, achieve my, my financial goals and objectives, that really at this point, they shouldn't be taking maximum risk. You know, the, the time to do that was when you were, you know, probably a, a little younger or in your peak earnings years and that sort of things. And so even, you know, at our firm at Pinnacle, you know, the vast majority of our clients are in some sort of balanced portfolio, meaning they generally have a, a mix of stocks and bonds. And so they aren't taking the full risk of the stock market. And I think, you know, that's something important for people to keep in mind, meaning that, you know, in the worst of February and March, the headlines were very, very scary in terms of the size of the declines occurring every day, whether, you know, and, and typically this is reported on, on the stock market averages like the Dow Jones or the S&P 500. But if you're in a balanced portfolio, the declines aren't going to be that large. Um, they're going to be some some degree less than that. And so I think, first of all, you know, folks who are in some sort of balanced portfolio need to keep in mind that, you know, they did not experience the, the size of the decline that was widely reported, which, you know, for the S&P 500, it went down 34 percent. You know, if you were in a balanced portfolio, maybe it was something more like half of that. So I, I think that's the first thing uh, to, to keep in mind for, mo for most folks. And then I think the second thing is, you know, once you've made that important decision of what your portfolio policy should be, you know, we always try to counsel our clients that it, it's, it's important to try not to make an emotional decision in the midst of a market sell off. Um, you know, the, the time to do that is when, when markets are actually pretty calm is in, in terms of thinking about how much risk is in your portfolio and whether that should be, you know, increased or decreased depending on, you know, a, a professional financial plan that, that um, would help guide that. Um, so, it, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, it, it's hard to do because the fear can be very palpable, like I said. Um, but, we, we, you know, we certainly counsel clients not to do that. And, and the second thing I should just add to that is, you know, going completely to cash is making a statement of certainty that we as an investment team don't normally have, meaning that, you know, if you take all of your money out of the market and go to cash, you're basically making a statement that you think the market is virtually guaranteed to continue going lower. You know, your conviction in that is extremely high. And, you know, as active managers, we, we generally don't have a level of conviction that, that that's that strong. You know, there there is always um, risk to the outlook, both to the, to the good side and the bad side. So, you know, in general, you know, we think it can make sense to manage risk by increasing or decreasing risk in a portfolio, um, but in a more incremental type of fashion where, you know, again, you're not making these all or nothing bets of I'm, I'm completely in the market or I'm completely out and trying to, you know, make that sort of um, uh, timing decision like that. Big bets, not a good time to do that. All right. Number three shifting your assets and holdings exclusively to stocks you think are going to do well in a recovery can be a huge mistake i'm thinking that kind of decision would have to involve some sort of tea leaves or maybe a crystal ball 
I mean, to hit individual equities correctly, even half the time, up and down, your chances are pretty small, aren't they? Yeah, and this, this is another thing I think that, you know, for a lot of people, there is an allure to owning um, uh, uh, individual stocks out there. Sometimes you might hear stories from your neighbor or coworker that they own XYZ stock that's doing really well. Um, but again, I think in terms of, of a portfolio that's being invested for the long term, um, and again, trying to you know provide a rate of return through retirement, and you know uh, basically that would allow you to hit your financial goals and objectives. Um, you know, for a lot of people, I don't think it necessarily makes sense to take that individual stock risk. You know, even good companies and, and stocks that have done really well, you, you never know when you can walk in and based on some piece of bad news, you know, a stock could be down 10, 20, 30 percent in a single day. Um, again, just based on maybe, you know, uh, they, they suggested that their earnings aren't going to be quite as good this quarter as that was uh, as was expected or, or something along those lines. So. You know, I think for a lot of people, they need to, to really think about whether it makes sense to to you know put, be putting a lot of money into individual equities um, if they're not doing a, a lot of legwork like, you know, the, the folks on Wall Street are doing in terms of reading annual reports and understanding the financials and all of that sort of thing. And, you know, e even for those pros who, who do all that work, a lot of times they can get it wrong just because, you know, making making a call on these individual companies can can be pretty tough to do. So, um you know, we would, you know, suggest that people take a, a more diversified type of approach, um, you know, using things like exchange traded funds that are, are very diversified and are, are baskets of individual stocks instead of owning them directly. You know, a lot of research out there suggests that, you know, if you just get the sector call right, that you're getting more than half of the return anyway. Um, so to, to, for our standpoint, how we do things, we put a lot of emphasis on focusing on sectors and trends that way. Um, and then the other thing is, I think people, you know, it, it, it's hard to know how these different, I, I've already mentioned this, but some of these industries are going to bounce back. So I think a lot of people, um, even recently, there are headlines that a lot of retail investors have jumped into certain areas that have gotten uh, really clobbered, like, you know, cruise lines and, and retail and those sorts of things. And, um, you know, you have seen a little bit of a rebound in some of those names over the last several weeks. But I think, again, there's a lot of uncertainty about how well these companies are going to be able to do looking out over the next several quarters and the next few years. So, you know, I think people need to be a little bit careful about how much they're putting into, into, into individual equities, excuse me, um, and think about creating kind of a more of a diversified approach with their portfolios. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, but feel like you could use some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsourced options and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. For more information or to set up an appointment, call 201 919-4838. Carl, number four is interesting. Liquidating some assets to raise cash in the wrong order can create an untenable situation. So there's an optimum order of, of asset classes and, and types of investments that you could liquidate in order to raise cash. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and this is an interesting one in terms of, in terms of my role. Um, I'm not you know, necessarily the expert on these particular issues. 
which are more planning based. Um, I spend all of my time laser focused on our portfolios and, and how they are positioned and, and looking for new investments and that sort of thing. But what I can tell you is that, you know, at our firm, the way it's structured, you know, we do have a whole group of very, um, you know, qualified and, and sophisticated financial planners who spend all of their time thinking about issues like this. And I can tell you that they would certainly agree that there is um, sort of a, 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 the right way and a wrong way to go about doing this. Um, but even on our side of the equation, even though I'm not spending all of my time necessarily in, involved in this type of issue, on the investment side, we do spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how we can most uh, efficiently position people's portfolios from a tax standpoint. And what I mean by that is we take a look at all of the securities that we own. We essentially sign rankings to them um, in terms of their tax efficiency. We have a pretty sophisticated trading software that will then um, know where to place things. Because again, most folks we work with have a, a mix of different types of, you know, taxable accounts and then, you know, IRA or other deferred type of tax exempt accounts. Um, and so, you know, what we spend a lot of time on on the investment side is thinking about how do we best position the, you know, the securities in the portfolio across these accounts to maximize the tax efficiency for people, which then should help down the road as they're working with their advisor and thinking about how they're gonna liquidate the assets out of their portfolio over time. So, you know, it's really a team effort, I should say, in, in both parts um, in terms of the way that we do this. Uh, but I would encourage people, you know, who don't have uh, those types of resources available to, de to definitely, you know, look this up and, and consider um, and, you know, we'll look into this issue and, and understand what the implications are in terms of how they're drawing money out of their portfolio. So it's important to really understand what you're doing before you start making any moves. Always a good idea. Number five is another great one. Not getting professional advice if your portfolio is complex can cause irreversible damage to your retirement funding. Now, people have retired on their own for years without an advisor. Why is now different? I think what's changed uh, over the course of this year, and, and maybe, I, maybe I should step back, I think you know, a lot of people have migrated to some of these passive type of strategies and even passive portfolio offerings from things like robo-advisors that are out there. And you know, that served them very, very well, um, quite frankly, for the last five or 10 years as markets were mostly drifting higher and the economy was generally okay. But you know, I think where maybe some of the drawbacks to that type of approach um, are lie in the fact of what we've seen this year. You know, when market volatility erupts the way it has, um, when, you know, things happen to the economy that are going to have some lasting changes to it looking ahead, which we, we do believe that that will be the case. That's where I think a passive type of approach to this may not serve people um, as well as it might have in the past. And, you know, another reason for that is I, I think, you know, a couple of the issues I've, I've already mentioned, the, the fact that interest rates have come down to the extent that they have, um, the way that, you know, equities have even rebounded from the March lows, all of these things suggest that looking ahead, the, the typical return that you might expect off of some of these asset classes is probably going to be lower than it was, you know, looking ahead several, you know, one, two, three, four years from now. And, you know, I think that, you know, engaging some professional advice and even considering using a more active strategy in your portfolio might help you navigate these markets um, and, you know, as we move forward in almost some, to some degree, some uncharted waters considering what's happened. So, you know, um, if, if people haven't done this yet, I, I would encourage to maybe consider it. Um, you know, there are a lot of good, uh, uh, professional advice that, that's available out there. Um, but you know, again, we just think that this could help guide people from where we are today, um, and looking ahead several years, as opposed to just thinking, well, 
you know, I haven't needed this up till this point and, you know, I'm, which means that I'm not going to need it going forward either. So always a good idea to get some help from professionals, not only for the expertise, but for some perspective as well. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I see we have some questions from our viewers. Carl, if you have a few moments, could we uh, get them some answers? Ah, uh, sure. No problem. All right. Uh, here, one, one viewer writes in, it seems like the market just keeps rewarding the same stocks. Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google. Are these going to continue to be the leaders going forward? Is this where I should place my bets? Yeah, well, you just you just rattled off some of the big winners there over the last few years, certainly. And, you know, to the extent that, that some people on this uh, have owned those names, well, congratulations to them. They've, they've done uh, very well. Um, I, I think the way that we look at this is, generally speaking, those companies fall across sort of some similar sectors and industries um, that encompass, you know, what is kind of known as, uh, as known are growth sectors, excuse me. Um, so you have companies that are involved in technology or consumer discretionary, even communication services in some instances with Facebook and Google. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's been driving, I mean, certainly these are dynamic, good companies and, and their stocks have performed well. But the other thing has just been the overall environment. You know, these growth companies have done well precisely because economic growth overall has been pretty low. Um, inflation and interest rates have been very low. And this is the type of environment that favors these types of companies. You know, these are companies that can grow their earnings uh, pretty rapidly, despite the fact that overall growth is pretty low. Um, and they've been re they've been rewarded for that. So, you know, uh, in our portfolios today, we do have a tilt towards growth companies and including some of the names that you rattled off there. Um, and we think the environment for the time being probably will continue to, to support those to some degree. But, you know, we would also caution people, again, not not to put too much into these types of names. And then the, you know, the second part of that is at some point the environment can and, and most likely will change um, where some of those things that I said are benefiting those companies maybe will start to favor other sectors and industries. And, you know, from our standpoint, that would take more of a, a reacceleration in economic growth, um, maybe a little bit of an uptick in interest rates finally and an uptick in inflation potentially, which, you know, again, probably isn't a, a very near term concern, but it, it could start to happen looking down the road. And in that case, I think you would see the market start to shift in favor of other areas, more cyclical types of, of sectors, whether it's financials or industrials or, or those types of companies. And, you know, all of a sudden, these companies that have worked very, very well for the last few years may may not work as well on, um, as the environment starts to shift and change like that. So that would be another reason to consider, um, again, maybe implementing a little bit more of an active strategy that, that can tilt towards these when, when conditions seem like. It's, it's the right time for sort of growth names and growth companies. And then, you know, begin to think about transitioning or tilting back the other way um, somewhere down the road when it looks like conditions are starting to change. So really, it's the right companies at the right time, but uh, that could change. So keep an eye on things. Okay. Uh, another viewer writes, I've been hearing a lot about gold recently. <laughs> Frankly, I always thought gold investors were a strange breed who are overly negative about the economy. But I see that it's gone up a lot. Should I consider buying some? Uh, that's an interesting one because you're right. Uh, gold does seem to evoke, uh, evoke some strong emotions out there, either from people who you know want to own it and really like it all the time. Uh, sometimes they they tend to be more worried about you know the economy collapsing or those those types of things. Then you have other people that kind of look at gold and don't get it at all and never want to own it because they you know it doesn't produce any cash flows or anything like that. So you know you do get a very uh, you can get very heated debates about. Um, from the standpoint of, of whether gold is a good investment or not. I think for us overall, we're, we're pretty agnostic, but we do think that there are certain environments and conditions 
where gold can actually be a pretty attractive thing to include in your portfolio to some degree. Um, and I think right now, again, one of the big reasons for considering owning gold is the combination of the fact that, you know, interest rates are, are very, very low right now. So a competing asset like a, a, like a bond with an interest rate on it is, is so minuscule right now that that removes um, some of the competition that, that normally exists out there for gold. And particularly when you add inflation to the mix, even though inflation is, is very low already, interest rates are also extremely low. So actually the real or the inflation adjusted interest rate is negative. And historically, when real interest rates are negative has actually been a very positive environment for gold. Um, and we have seen gold make a big move over the last several months. Uh, and I think partially is driven by that. I think the other thing people should consider is that, you know, again, governments are uh, adding a lot of debt to the equation to try to address these problems um, that, you know, eventually that could create some inflation maybe down the road. We don't think that that's a near term concern, but, you know, typically that might be something that helps, uh, you know, helps gold out in terms of uh, boosting its price to some degree. Um, and then again, gold can just act as a, as a pretty good portfolio hedge when things get very volatile, like we've seen. So gold did hold up um, over the course of this year uh, better than, you know, the equity markets did, particularly when they were selling off the way that we saw. So, you know, including some some um, percentage of gold and probably not a big one, but some percentage of gold in your portfolio can actually help, um, you know, can, can help uh, provide a little bit of ballast to, to some degree in addition to the stocks and bonds that you probably already own. Hmm. So maybe the crisis has a gold lining, possibly. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Another reader writes, the government has printed trillions of dollars out of thin air to help support the economy this year. How can this possibly be a good thing? Won't it end badly in an inflationary debt bust? What are we going to do with all this extra money? No, that, that is true. Uh, governments, uh, a few minutes ago, I think I, I mentioned that they, they've gone into overdrive in, in a way that really we haven't seen before. Um, in the wake of 2008 and 2009, the, the great financial crisis, um, central bankers did become more active than they had been and created different types of stimulus programs. But what we've seen now over the last just three or four months has gone well beyond what we even saw for several years following um, the great financial crisis. So they've, they've accelerated and gotten more creative in terms of the types of programs that they've rolled out, the amount of money that's involved that's well into the trillions of dollars. Um, and all of this is, was to try to uh, you know, ultimately stop the free fall in markets that we saw and improve functioning, which we have seen since then. Um, but there are some concerns. And, and, and I should have added that fiscal authorities have also created large scale fiscal stimulus packages to you know, try to provide um, relief and lifelines to, you know, not only small businesses, but, you know, um, people who have found themselves unemployed as a result of the, of the pandemic. Um, and, and all of these are, are very admirable objectives and programs that, that have been created. But, you know, there, there could be ramifications somewhere down the road in terms of how much debt we've now added on to an already indebted uh, global economy. Um, I think from our standpoint, that's not something that's going to be a near term concern in terms of relating it specifically to inflation all of a sudden, um, you know, spiking higher and, you know, turning into the 1970s all over again. And a big reason for that is I think the impact of the virus and, and the shutdown of the economy was was really all about or largely about demand destruction. And it just blew a big hole in the economy um, when things shut down overnight. So, um you know, really what this seems to be doing at the moment is almost plugging a hole that was created uh, as a result of the pandemic hitting the economy the way that it did. So, you know, we, we think that, you know, what they've done is, is hugely important in terms of specifically for markets. 
it should help you know uh, economies start to recover a little bit more quickly um and yeah there there could be ramifications down the road that i'm sure will be continue to be debated by lots of people out there but the way that people think about their portfolios today and even looking out over the next few quarters or so i i don't think that that's something that necessarily is going to be a uh, you know, turn into some very negative unintended consequences in the near term. Um, so, you know, I, I think for the time being, people should kind of take the stimulus at face value in the sense that it is helping, you know, like I said, not only markets, but economies recover. So it is a stopgap measure, but it's mm -hmm. enough to buy us some time while the rest of it sort of works itself out over time. We have time for one more question. One rumor writes, I count on the income generated from my portfolio to cover some of my living expenses. But with interest rates so low again, I'm worried this won't work anymore. Should I move more of my portfolio out of bonds and into high dividend stocks to get better yields? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's one that we actually get fairly frequently now from, from even our own clients and especially those who are positioned more conservatively. So there are always sort of byproducts to what happens when, you know, uh, they, they provide this much liquidity today, meaning, you know, central bankers and governments, this much liquidity and stimulus. And unfortunately with, you know, um, even though bringing interest rates lower historically has been uh, a big stimulus overall for the economy, clearly the offset to that is, you know, it really destroys the amount of uh, interest people can earn off just savings or money markets or CDs or the types of things that they might've been using um, to position very conservatively um, and produce a little bit of income and perhaps somewhat some of that used to live off of. So, you know, it is unfortunate that that's a little bit of a byproduct. Um, and, and, you know, I think people need to get a little bit more creative about how and where they're looking for that. Um, but at the same time, they need to be careful about how much risk they're taking, because, you know, to the extent that you can find higher yields or higher dividends out there right now, you know, I think that by definition, it's pushing people out on the risk spectrum in order to do that. So, you know, whether it's inside of bonds, you know, you maybe you owned more uh, higher quality treasury types of bonds prior to this that now yield very little. Well, you can find higher yields, but it's in areas like high yield or junk bonds. Those are very, very risky compared to treasury bonds. So you have to be careful about how much you might shift um, from one to the other just to boost the income of your portfolio. And then the, the, addressing this question directly about moving from fixed income into equities, even if they're dividend yielding ones, is a decision people need to, to take very, um, very cautiously, I should say, because, you know, uh, moving from bonds to stocks is a, is a whole different ballgame in terms of the risk profile of stocks compared to bonds. And, and it might be appropriate for some people to do that to some degree. And for other people, it may or other people, it may not be appropriate to do that. So I think this goes back to, you know, understanding and setting a portfolio policy overall in terms of how much risk it makes sense to be taking for each individual investor out there. Um, and again, if people aren't sure or, or can't quite figure out how to do that, then that's where, again, some professional advice can certainly come into play and help people make those decisions. Carl gave us some good insights there and some strong arguments you can use with clients who may want to make some sometimes drastic, sometimes potentially disastrous changes to their portfolios or their retirement plan. If you have questions about how to approach clients about some of these important investment or planning adjustments, drop us a line at 4advisors at pinnacleadvisory.com and we'll get you some answers. Hope you enjoyed today's special program. I'm your host at 4advisors, Dave Polis, and until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to 4advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. 
This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such.